everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. We've been on a journey through wilderness this Lent, and at last we are approaching Holy Week. One of the things I find most profound about this moment in time are the multiple emotions and occasions that build and stand in contrast to one another. The triumph and desperation of Palm Sunday, the loneliness Jesus felt as those closest to him grew tired of his grief and trauma, the communion and blessing, the trial, the heavy cross, the violence, the chance for solidarity, the last few friends who walk away when death draws near, and the space in between failure and transformation. God knows we have seen most of this in the last 12 months. Some of you have lived it. Some of you showed up to help save people's lives or to help them die, to be with bodies when others of us could not. That sacred and overwhelming privilege. This is the story of Holy Week and of our ancestors and of people around the world, neighbors and strangers and coworkers and friends who bear their unjust share of the world's trauma while many of us, myself included, grow weary at the thought of it all. And just like the accounts of that very first Easter, we get to choose now what we do and how we respond as our story unfolds. My next guest, theologian So Jung Kim, and I recorded this conversation several weeks ago, before the latest mass shootings in Atlanta, targeting Asian Americans, and another again in Boulder, Colorado. I'm struck in listening to this conversation again at how timely and timeless her reflections are. Understandably, like most of those who were close to Jesus in his final days before the cross, we think we cannot bear to remain for another loss. But in returning to places of wounding, we find our way forward. And that way forward requires that people, especially white people like me, sit long enough and recognize this kind of trauma that it's not an isolated incident or an unusual occurrence for the majority of people around the world. And it continues through our complicity in systems that perpetuate injustice. This is the work of the church. This is the witness of Holy Week. Love is like consoling us and giving us the comfort that really you just relax, rest a little bit. Everything is too much and you really do not have to drive yourself to the direction that you have to always have to show some productivity, work, 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 or merit. So Jung Kim is a South Korean theologian who has lived and studied many years in the United States. She is an associate for theology for the National Church, and I'm so grateful that she is my colleague at the Presbyterian Mission Agency. In part one of our two-part conversation, we reflect on the urgency of God talk, and the sacred mysteries that unfold when a 14th century French mystic named Marguerite Porret meets her 21st century soul sister, So Jung Kim. Let's jump right in. So Jung, thank you so much for being here today for this conversation. Thank you so much for your invitation and I feel overwhelmed uh, that I am invited to this uh, New Worshiping Communities podcast. Oh, it's really my pleasure to have you. I've been really encouraged and amazed by your own conversations that you've been having theologically on God Talk, your own podcast and program. You said something recently to me that struck me that we shouldn't be afraid to engage in God Talk. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking about 
someone in a particular situation when you say that? I'm not sure whether I am thinking about someone particularly, but let's see. <laughs> so I am uh, running this uh, vlog, uh, Everyday God Talk, and I came up with the idea because I'm a theologian, and then uh, most of the things I do, most of the conversation I'm engaging most of the time about theology. And then I often get this odd reaction from people whenever I say, I'm a theologian. Yeah. <laughs> and then I study theology and my job is something to do with theology. And then, you know, people are theology. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I can read all kinds of reasons in that reaction. And I think most often people find theology very, very distant yeah. and then not really relevant to their life. Uh, but theology in its Greek root, theos and logos, my teacher, Catherine Keller, one of my teachers, many teachers, uh, Catherine Keller uh, would say theos and logos, actually the combination of the word God and the words, right? And it can simply mean God talk. Mm hmm it's really nothing that's very difficult. And God talk in that sense includes encompass many, many things, like anything related to God. So it can just start from simple prayers mm -hmm. in the morning when we wake up. Uh, it can be related to the hymns, right? We chant or sing, which is related to the divine or uh, divinity happening in our, in our lives. Yeah, so it's not just about the Bible, right. or it's not just about the old white dead people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of this hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, In Light, Inaccessible, Hid From Our Eyes. I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of a depressing hymn, because God is so distant. And I get the point that mm -hmm. uh, we can only contemplate, but to endeavor to do theology is a strange mm -hmm. thing, in mm -hmm. the sense that... If God is beyond our comprehension, who are we to talk about God? But mm -hmm. what you're saying is that words about God matter. Mm -hmm. When I say God talk, it's not really talk about God, mm. but it also includes talk with God mm. and talk to God and talk from God as well. So it's like multi-dimensional and more interactional. And I think theologians' job is a little bit different from all those God talkers. Okay. <laughs> in a sense that theologians just overthink about it. I know. And we analyze about it. And then we go into the rabbit holes, like, by overthinking that God talk's happening. But everybody is basically God talkers, and then they contribute to theology. Mm -hmm. Well, you're saying something to me that, honestly, I haven't really thought about it this way before, which is funny because I do have have a degree in from seminary mm -hmm. and I've spent a lot of time sort of talking about God, but you introducing this idea to me of the dialogical process of theology that includes interacting with God rather than me and other theologians or folks who are not formally educated in theology talking about God, you're saying this is a process that includes interaction and can include interaction with God, God's self. Right. So you just articulated a very important aspect of God talk. It's dialogical and it's interactional. Hmm. Can you give an example of something that you have been studying recently mm. that's been enhanced by this dialogical nature? Right. 
from that aspect, uh, one of the figures I am very much interested in nowadays is Margaret Porret. She's a medieval mystic and also a known Beguine. That's B-E-G-U-I-N-E. Yes. It was the group of uh, women across mainly Western Europe in late medieval period uh, who formed communities within the cities in the very urban areas. And then they would uh, live a community-based life sharing meals and sharing the things they have and then do the ministry for the poor um, in the urban areas and then they would not get married uh, they would follow the celibacy but then they are not nuns hmm. they are not clergy they are not trained in academic uh, institutions like seminaries right <laughs> in general they are deemed as lay women right forming communities of women but then they are not really lay women in a sense that they are following the orders and then they have rules, they have rituals, and then they have their theology. They are God talkers mm. and who are engaging with these God talks in a more serious way than ordinary people may do. Mm. It was a very interesting phenomena in those time. It emerged at that time, maybe 13th or 14th centuries. And then it still continues. So if you go to uh, some parts of Western Europe, you can still find these communities of Beguines. Hmm. When you're talking about these orders that emerged during that time of people who gathered together for an express purpose, it seems as though most orders committed to particular practices that they observed together. Mm -hmm. They were living together, sharing meals, sharing prayers, sharing specific times and kinds of mm -hmm. prayers. But mm -hmm. these Beguines, it seems that they were maybe more self-determining in some ways. Yes, right. Very self-determining, also very fluid. Hmm. Neither lay people nor the religious order in a sense that they really do not have a strict order or yeah. like Franciscans or Dominicans, yeah. like rules. They didn't have those strict rules, but they had latitude and freedom to explore and serve all kinds of people. I think that's what scholars would say. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you what you think the church thought of them. Yeah, so they were a very weird people to them, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. A lot of activities they were engaging was very much dialogical and interactional. Mm -hmm. They would dialogue and interact with so many kinds of people. And then the church didn't find it very comfortable, I would say, because these are women who are not married yeah. and they're interacting with all kinds of people <laughs> and they're doing lots of activities and they are not even nuns. They do not live in monastery, right? They are not living in some kind of convent mm -hmm. <laughs> and they have freedom. And Margaret Port is a good example and she is unique in a sense that lots of Beguine's writings are usually uh, obviously uh, very empirical, mm -hmm. like based on experience, mm -hmm. especially their ecstatic experience. Mm -hmm. They see Christ, mm -hmm. right? And they also feel the Holy Spirit. But Marjorie Porret is a little different in a sense that she was a very sophisticated thinker. She writes about this dialogical practice in her book, uh, which is called The Mirror of Simple Souls. Mm -hmm. And then this book is all about how this simple soul is talking about divine love and then talking with 
divine love. Hmm. And then talking to divine love. And then ultimately through that dialogical process and interaction, she becomes one with the divine love. Hmm. So there's multiple characters in this book and maybe they all have their own voice. They are describing their experience and interacting with one another. Right. And the three characters are named in English as reason, yes. love, and the soul. Yeah, those are three main protagonists, but there are many other human faculties also uh, mm. appear at times throughout the book, like chastity, for example. Mm. <laughs> and it's really interesting because that's all about God talk. <laughs> yeah. And then Porette, uh, this soul has to be completely emptied. So mm-hmm. this whole dialogical process is very, very like words-oriented, but then at the same time, it also shows how human language is not enough. Yeah. Anytime someone is able to embody the paradox that's inherent in Christian theology and experience, it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. And she does this, as you said, so brilliantly. She's thinking about these things. She's writing about these things. And mm-hmm. in that dialogical interaction in her magnum opus, the Mirror of Simple Souls, she's actually illustrating the fact that when she writes about these things, she's going through the process of self-annihilation. Right. And she's creating this dialogue with entities such as reason, which you had told me before, she's referring to the church, maybe an entity that's not willing to, in real life, have a conversation with her. Right. There's that nuance that the reason has uh, many aspects of the what church would do in a sense that when this simple soul exploring and um, navigating about her soul searching Mm -hmm. (laughs) and this reason always challenges this soul and then even ashames the soul Mm. and then like tattletales Mm. (laughs) about what soul does to the divine love and that's the way the reason interrogates and also sometimes judges the soul and then every time the soul is challenged but at the same time she's not really uh, bending her position or her argument or questions. She keeps questioning. And then the divine love is always there mediating and then (laughs) giving some solutions. Mm. I'm wondering if you have a little quote or passage that we could hear that would illustrate the ways in which um, the soul and reason and love are communicating to one another. Mm-hmm. How many of the protagonists are in this little passage that you're reading? Well, there are mainly three here. Okay. The main protagonists, love, reason, and soul. Okay. And you can see an example how each other, right, challenge. So it's in chapter 87 of the book. Love starts the conversation. This soul, says love, is the lady of the virtues, daughter of deity, sister of wisdom, and bride of love. Truly, says the soul, but this seems to reason to be strange language. But it is not strange, and in a little while, reason will be no more. But I was, says this soul, and I am, and I will be always without lack. For love has no beginning, no end, and no limit, and I am nothing except love. How would I have anything else? This could not be. Ah, God, says reason. How dare one say this? I dare not listen to it. I am fainting, truly, lady soul, in hearing you. My heart is failing. I have no more life. (laughs) 
So like reason is just dead. Yeah, you can't reason handle is dead. It. I know this is really funny. And Allah's soul says, did it take so long? This death, says this soul. For as long as I had you, Lady Reason, I could not freely receive my inheritance. What was at his mind? But now I can receive it freely since I have wounded you to death by love. Wow. Okay, that's super powerful. So soul has been waiting for reason to die so that the soul could experience love. Mm -hmm. So not many scholars actually talk about this death of reason. Mm. I think this is pretty recent (laughs) excavation of uh, the reasons uh, dying at this Mm -hmm. moment. And... This also leads me to think more about what this season of Lent means to us. I think the Lent, maybe when we think of uh, from the Margaret Perrette spirituality, is this constant dialogue and interaction within our head, maybe, especially during this time of uh, pandemic. And constant like annihilation and killing this big voice in our head, which is not really affirming us rather being critical sometimes because we are isolated, we are not connected to each other, but then we also have to kill this voice of (laughs) judgmental reason at some point. And then after, right after this, love um, intervenes in a conclusive and then affirming way. Therefore, I will say, says love, what reason would say if she were alive in you, she would ask of you. Beloved of us, says love to this soul, who is love herself and nothing other than love, ever since love, by her divine goodness, had put reason and the works of the virtue under her feet and led them to their death without return. So it's like love is like consoling us and giving us the comfort that really you just relax, rest a little bit, everything is too much and you really do not have to drive yourself to the direction that you have to always have to show some productivity, like uh, work, 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 or merits. Mm-hmm. It's more like, yeah, letting it go. In my mind, I've often thought of reason as this corrective to my life. Mm-hmm. And what strikes me about Marguerite Perrette's writing in this passage you shared is that love is the corrective. And even though in my mind, I think the more and more I think into this orthodoxy or I synthesize my experience and I take in others' accounts, the sort of more human or the better person I'm going to become mm-hmm. is not to say that love doesn't correct us, but love corrects in a different way yes. and reforms right. us or mm-hmm. draws us in in a very different way than reason does. Yeah, you're right. Love is sometimes correcting people. And also there's this love, which is earthly, which is not divine. And then soul at the uh, later stage of these uh, dialogical journey even kills the love. The love, what she thinks divine Mm. is not really divine. So this is a complete annihilation of everything what she thinks uh, to be true. Will you tell me a little bit more about Marguerite Perrette's life? Well, it is actually very ambiguous, uh, mainly because everything about her burned at the stake. The church found her voice very, very challenging. And the historical records where we can find her is this interrogation notes the church did against Marjorie Porette. And according to this interrogation, 
Marjorie Porette, even though the church silenced her and then asked her to admit that she did wrong and then she will now follow the church instead of circulating and then encouraging people to read her theology, her book, right? And Marjorie would not follow that order. And then she kept encouraging people to read her work and then participate in that dialogical journey maybe. And then the church found it very, very heretic and very uh, daring, right? Mm -hmm. How dare? So after many, I think months maybe uh, of uh, interrogation and then Porat at some point, according to that uh, records, became completely silent. She didn't say a word, but then she had to admit that she was wrong, but she didn't. And finally she got executed, burnt at the stake, and her books were also prohibited. But somehow some manuscripts were still circulating, translated into different words, and then her work book was not discovered until 19, uh, 20th century, early 20th century, I would say. What happens when someone during that time period is executed by the church and burned at the stake? What happens after that event? Yeah, I'm more of a God talker, yeah. not a historian. Okay. But what would happen in our days if someone is executed by the government, right? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of shame, right? Mm-hmm. And what happened to our Jesus? Yeah. When Jesus was crucified, mm-hmm. it's a lot of grief, loss. And at the same time, there are people who are mocking Jesus too. I think there's that unintentionally, Margaret Porret also showed the way of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. <laughs> so that's also a mysterious aspect of Margaret Porret and Christians, I would say. Yeah, will you say more about that? Because at that time, there were also this practice of imitatio Christi. The imitation of Christ. Yeah, imitation of Christ. And that's what people would do usually throughout the Lent. And then uh, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Easter. They imitate what Christ did through this journey. But then this is like more theatrical. It's very intentional. And of course, through that performance and intentional theatrical activities, we learn and we also embody the Christ. But then it's much more difficult to embody the life of Christ in our real life. Non-theatrics, yeah. (laughs) Right, non-theatrics, which is pure like event, Mm. life happenings. And I think that's what Margaret Porret's life uh, shows us, uh, even though the whole uh, accurate records we cannot find about her birth or life, right? Other than her interrogation and then the book. Yeah. Yeah. I'm imagining in the records of the Gospels, which is where we journey with Jesus into the events of his ministry, of course, the last three years max of his life, and the zooming in onto the final weeks and days of Jesus's life before his crucifixion. Mm. To me, it's interesting the parallels between the way the disciples are trying to figure out what it is that Jesus is up to and some of them sort of approximating Mm. his plans, but also wishing to disrupt his plans or save themselves, possibly save him. And the parallels between that and Marguerite Porette's 
own dialogue mm-hmm. and own, as you said, literal life, not just the dialogue in her book, but confronting and living into this self-annihilation. Yeah. So she was not just writing and speaking about it, but she was also living it. Yeah. Even those of us who are dialoguing both within and outside of the church mm-hmm. to say that someone's life approximates Christ, which is sort of the expressed goal, if we're honest, of Christianity in some ways. Right. And that I think there is that power of conversation, words and talks. And I understand this concern that you only talk and you really do not walk the talk, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Then that can be problematic. But like, I think words and the conversations and then the talk has uh, lots of power over people's living and doing things. And not everything can be expressed through words, but without words and without talking about it first, you really cannot think about it. So there's this dynamic between speaking and living, Mm. doing and saying, Mm -hmm. and words and actions, Mm -hmm. and talk and walk. Those two always go together. And then these two are never enough to uh, embody and then incarnate the way the Christ lived, Uh, but then we have to try. Mm. And then we constantly talk and walk and do and say. And uh, that's what also Margaret Porret showed to us. And that's why theologians matter, even though we often just write and talk (laughs) and speak. But then words have this influence over people's lives. Yeah, the idea of a rhythm developing There are times when we're in our heads, there are times when we're in our bodies, and those aren't always the same times, maybe because we're human beings and we're doing the best that we can to make sense of life. And and not only to make sense of the human life, but to make sense of our human lives laid across or guided by the image of Christ's life, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. certainly another thing. It's not like intentional, like theatrical, as I said, forged performance, Mm -hmm. but then there's always that interaction which has impact on our lives, I would say, especially during this time of Lent. Yes. (laughs) By the way, part two of our conversation is already out with Sojun Kim. In it, we reflect on the psychological and communal consequences of toxic positivity in our God talk and how we might consider observing Easter differently this year. In the meantime, I highly recommend you check out Sojung's video blog, God Talk, which you can find by searching for the page Theology and Worship on Facebook. Thank you for listening to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Our producer is the fabulous Marthame Sanders. You can see stories and photos from the humans who make up this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Be sure to click subscribe wherever you found this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Our growing community streams from Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, and online at newchurchnewway.org. Catch you next time.